0: The Giant Thinker's Giant Thinker's Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm Ram Castillo and in this podcast, I'm bringing to you top experts from various industries worldwide to learn from their success and to help us become better designers, creatives and giant thinkers. Hello, Giants. This is episode number 72. If this is the first time you're tuning in, welcome. My name is Ram Castillo. I'm a multidisciplinary designer, have written two books on how to get a job as a designer and how to get a mentor, spoken at events all around the world, and have been running this podcast since 2015. My goal is to interview the world's best experts to specifically help designers, creatives, and entrepreneurs navigate their way, whether it be mentally, technically, financially, emotionally, spiritually, physically, and of course, pragmatically. And this episode is a perfect example of that. Today's guest is a household name. She's a three-time Olympic gold medalist and five-time world record holder, She's even been inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. When she was a full-time competitor, her rigorous training involved over five hours a day, six days a week, swimming 3,000 kilometers a year. So we have front row seats to hearing from an elite athlete about physical fitness and mental toughness. Now, as a retired athlete, she dedicates her time in entrepreneurship mentorship, speaking engagements, and supporting other swimmers through her courses and programs. Some of the topics we spoke about include her top five vegan ingredient staples, her self-talk prior to big races like the 2008 Beijing Olympics, tools and systems that kept her accountable for high-level training, her tips for breathing, strokes, and leg kicks for non-confident swimmers, and we chat about plenty more. So if you're interested in having the mindset of a pro athlete and keen to implement that into your career, or your endeavors, or your own brand or business, then this is for you as we uncover what it takes to succeed like an Olympic champion. Now, before we dive in, I'd like to share with you one of my favorite resources, which is Stocksy, and also pass on a generous gift from them, which is a chunky 20% discount. Stocksy are my image search library of choice, and personally, after over 14 years in the design industry, I've gone through hundreds of stock libraries that just don't have the creative quality and creative variety that Stoxy have. So to save you the hassle, I'm putting Stoxy in front of you as they've provided me and my peers with extremely high quality, royalty free stock photography and cinematic video with reasons why I believe they are at the top of my list. So before I plug the 20% off discount and before you hit the fast forward button, please allow me to expand with four very short points. Firstly, their image library isn't full of cheesy overused assets. Second, they use a highly curated editing approach to carefully select the most useful and authentic photos to include in their collection. Third, their business model differs from traditional stock photography companies. They focus on creative integrity, fair pay, fair profit sharing, and co-ownership for members and artists. Lastly, their website is very easy to use. The searching, filtering, navigating, it's all very clear, intuitive, and simple. They even have a drag and drop search feature. So let's say you have an image and want to see a similar image on Stocksy, drag any image into their website literally, into the browser and Stoxy will populate anything that is related for you to review. They've also launched a search by color feature. Enter a hex code or use their slider to search Stoxy's collection by color. Images start at just $15 USD and as a listener, you get 20% off. Head to giantthinkers.com slash Stoxy. Once again, that's giantthinkers.com dot com slash S-T-O-C-K-S-Y. Use the code GIANTTHINKERS20. The clickable link is also on this blog post. All right, let's get stuck in. I present to you the super friendly, humble, and determined Stephanie Rice. Stephanie Rice welcome to the giant thinkers podcast I am beyond excited to have you on the show how are you doing today
1: yeah I'm really good thanks I'm excited to be on and get another chance to share
0: Fantastic. So after over 70 episodes here in the podcast spanning over four years, you are officially our first Olympian on the show. So naturally, nice. I am, I'm, I'm struggling to contain my excitement. Um, on top of that, I, I can actually remember pretty much losing my voice cheering for you, um, <laughs> <laughs> yelling at the, the telly during the 2008 Beijing Olympics when you, you absolutely dominated and, and quickly became a household name. So thank you for, for making the time.
1: Thank you. It's actually so nice um, since being retired from swimming to hear other people's stories on like them watching me compete. I just never would have thought about that when I was actually swimming. So it's really nice to hear other people's story.
0: Yeah, thank you. Well, yeah, I can remember clearly. So it was a a good memory to have uh, over 10 years ago now. Um, So first off, Steph, I have an icebreaker question for you. Most know that you are vegan, so if you had to choose your top five food ingredient staples, what would they be?
1: Sweet potato, uh, tahini, I love avocado, Um, I love green juices, but I feel like that's like like five ingredients in one. (laughs) Some form of green, so um, I do really like spinach, and um, Brazil nuts are a favorite at the moment
0: fantastic
1: coconut yogurt though oh man oh yeah yeah. look five
0: to six (laughs) i definitely yeah i definitely follow your um your sort of uh variety in the regime and actually i think you posted something about the tahini you said you said it was super simple it was like it was cashews or nuts and then it was uh lemon juice a bit of honey what was that
1: I usually make a lot of my salad dressings with tahini. It just makes it creamy, which I love. <laughs> and I think sometimes like the people get this idea about, you know, being vegan that you are sort of not eating a lot of food and constantly being hungry. Like all you eat is salads. Um, but I usually bulk up my salads with roasted sweet potato or, you know, um, nuts and seeds. There's got to be crunch as well. So yeah, I usually make salad dressing with tahini, uh, lemon juice, orange juice, honey, you could do mustard or apple cider vinegar. And yeah, it's the bomb. Love it.
0: Yeah. No, it's always um, making me salivate every time I, I see you <laughs> post on that, which is great. Uh, so Steph, where would you say your expertise lies?
1: Oh, uh, well, it's interesting. I think that's kind of been a struggle area for me because obviously um, within swimming um, was the given. Um, and I feel as though I'll always feel most comfortable around a pool, giving swimming clinics, talking about swimming, creating swimming programs, swimming academies, things like that. Um, This just feels the most comfortable for me, which makes my belief is like, that's your area of expertise. Um, Outside of that, I guess there's like a number of kind of things that are attached to that. I would say I'm a naturally a high performance orientated person. Um, I definitely have a lot of skills within mindset around high performance, um, versus I guess the physical stuff. Like I haven't ever really been inclined to go into personal training or strength and conditioning and things like that. Um, but health, I think health as a whole, holistic health is something that I'm passionate about and liking to become more of an expert
0: in. Fantastic. So, Steph, can you share to us a little about your childhood and how you grew up?
1: So, I think, I mean, like most kids in Australia, we all have had to do some form of learn to swim um, at school or during your own kind of preschooling and things like that. So, I always loved the water. I just loved bath time. I loved being in the pool. I loved, you know, slippery slides and all that kind of thing. Like anything involved water, I just was all about it. Um, As a kid, I was incredibly shy. So I kind of didn't grow out of that until I really found swimming. And when I say found swimming, more so from a training perspective. So probably around the age of 13. Um, where I was really like, I want to take swimming more seriously, and I want to commit to a more serious training program. Then I felt like I met my swimming friends, and they were my people. Whereas during school and I guess childhood, I just never felt like I fitted in. Um, I felt very isolated because of that. Um, so I was very very shy, and then swimming really kind of bought out my extrovert, I guess, personality or comfort, and. Um, so I'm always grateful to swimming for kind of bringing me through that, uh, more reserved part of life, but, uh, I'm also grateful for it because I think anyone that gets thrown into the spotlight can kind of take you know, that road down the egotistical pathway of feeling like you are top shit. And I'm always grateful to have had the shy sort of side to me because I feel like it always grounds me in just feeling like a normal person and wanting everyone to feel comfortable and included and things like that.
0: Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because I think even now, whether you're a child or not, I think there is a lot of exclusion that we might internal uh, internally feel. What was it that, um, that kind of, that swimming as a vehicle, um, did for you? Was it the, the camaraderie, the, the sort of, um, the, the competitiveness of, 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 um, you know, going through the grind, you know, what?
1: I think it was a combination of a bit of all of that, to be honest. I think it was a feeling like swimming was my thing. It was something that I was naturally better at than all the other sports or creative ventures, music, etc. So swimming was, I think, you know, when you're naturally better at something than other people, you already feel more confident. So I definitely had that. Um, I felt like the people that were at training with me that were wanting to do something, they had goals, they had, um, you know, passion, they were driven, they worked hard. And I just felt like this was more me and you understand me. Um, But then I think having very clear goals, a very clear pathway to what success looks like as a swimmer just helped, I guess, bring all of that around. Definitely the camaraderie and in particular with swimming because it's a unisex sport. Um, So the whole, I guess, talk around, you know, female sport, equality, blah, 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 never applied to me because males and females have equal rewards, exactly the same competition you swim at. Um, And it's so... I always loved training with the boys and having that kind of masculine energy around because it teaches you to learn to handle yourself very, very quickly. Otherwise, you really fall apart. So I loved that camaraderie. I loved um, having to build confidence and strength because otherwise you were just going to get annihilated at training with all the payouts and all the, you know, just talk that boys at that age of 15 throw at you. Um, so, yeah, I really just had to kind of shape up very quickly and I am grateful for having to have to do that.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, you, um, you're you banking on your strengths and you are um, finding a vehicle that has co- sort of c- carried your purpose in a way. Um, so after winning three Olympic gold medals uh, and in record time, uh, you've actually uh broken five um records so you're a five-time world record holder which is incredible um what what was your self-talk like a few years prior to the beijing olympics and did that self-talk change as you got closer and closer right up until the finals
1: Yeah, it definitely changed from the point of, so with swimming, you have to have a Olympic qualifying meet where the team is selected to go to an Olympics. So essentially, if you don't come first or second at the selection meet, you don't go to the Olympics. So uh, leading up into the selection meet, I mean, and, and to be honest, I think my whole career, I've always felt like I was really good at this. And that I had the capacity to do well at it. But I think really when I hit about 15 and started doing well um, for my own age, like at my age group level, I was winning Australian medals and things like that. But that's when I started going, oh, my God, I could actually, you know, make this dream of going to an Olympics one day a reality because I'm actually starting to see that I'm close enough to getting there. Uh, whereas before it was just like some far out dream you know, wish that you hope to get one day. So I think from 15 to 18, where I made the Olympic team, it was always like, I've always had a very strong belief in my ability. I've always worked really bloody hard. Um, And I think hard work for me, uh, especially in a physical venture like swimming, gives you the confidence and gives you that mental edge that you know you've done everything you possibly could do to be the most prepared you could be come race day because, it you know, it's very unlike business in a lot of ways where you only have one chance every four years to perfect your performance at one specific time. So you can't restart, you can't do it again, you can't, you know, try it a couple of days later because you're feeling off. Like if you're feeling off kind of tough shit, that just, you just have to do it. Um And so I think I've always liked that pressure. I've always really thrived in that kind of environment. Once I then made the team, I really had like almost, I wouldn't call it a breakdown. It was very much this realization that my entire goal had been around making an Olympic team. And I had just done that, but I never really imagined actually having made it and then competing and what result would I like to get from actually now being here and it was this feeling of like oh shit I've never prepared for this before and like how do I change my entire mindset and um, mental preparation in a three-month window before the Olympics you know at this point I just I remember having a talk with my coach and being really really flustered and anxious and stressed about kind of having to do that and what now um and so i always then just tried to take the pressure off myself mentally by focusing on the journey the prep the basics keeping it simple like doing everything i could on a day-to-day basis and if i had done that consistently enough to the best of my ability that gave me you know the best possible chance of performing well at the Olympics. I never thought about the end result. I never, you know, imagined winning a gold medal. I think, I mean, every athlete that competes at the Olympics goes in with the goal of winning a gold medal, but the reality is like one in a billion people do that. So I think I always tried to file back the pressure and just focus on the prep, the basic steps day to day to day and knew that if it all added up that I could. I would be able to execute and that it would be worthy of a gold medal.
0: Mm. As you said earlier, you know, banking on your strengths and um, and almost not getting ahead of yourself. Um, yeah, which, I think can, a lot of people yeah. tend to do that. So I'm just curious, how did the environment or the people that you surrounded yourself with set you up for that level of, um, of mental toughness in a way?
1: Uh, I think... Uh, In particular with swimming, um, well, actually, I I take that back because, you know, I've moved on, I've been retired from swimming now for seven years. I think a huge part of who you are as a person, your work ethic, your beliefs are very much determined by the people you spend a lot of time with and that you are, I guess, on the journey with together. Um, so I would see that as like my business partners now or my agents and stuff like that. But when I was swimming, it was very much my coach and having that person, I guess, close to you be on the same pathway with you and, and I guess work to your weaknesses so that there's like a nice harmony and balance. So I tended to be more of a anxious person, I would not in, I guess, the way people think of anxiety. I just think I was more over uh, an overthinker. I would consider all the options. What ifs, this and that? What about if that happens? Like, how do we prepare? I would like to control as much as possible. Whereas my coach was more like, just keep it simple. (laughs) Like, and it used to frustrate the hell out of me because I was trying to get answers and he was like, don't worry about it. Oh, well. And, you know, that kind of thing. But we complemented each other so perfectly. Had I have had a coach that was also a stress-orientated person that got wound up when the pressure got bigger, um, which I think is a natural tendency in everyone, that would have set me over the edge. Um, so I think it's just really about having that person um, balance you out, have harmony with that person um, but also have someone that believes that it's actually possible um, in a deep-seated way. You know, there, it, you just know that there's potential to be able to achieve the result that both of you are working so hard for.
0: Yeah. So this coach of yours, Michael Boll, the, uh, the renowned Michael Boll, he coached many swimmers. Uh, I think I believe I read it was a quarter of the Olympic team. Was Yeah, for London. For London, which is incredible. Um, Do you remember something he said to you before, you know, the race that that mattered or um, something that really resonated with you that you can share with us?
1: Yeah, I think, um, look, I don't remember anything from an Olympic perspective because the talk that you would have, like the sort of pump up, pre-race talk that you have is so brief because you've already covered all of it in a like the training environment or when you arrive at the Olympic Village the week before the competition starts the warm-up that morning a couple of hours before it so when you're like in the racing suit cap and goggles in your hand ready to walk to the marshalling area sort of 20 minutes before D-Day you're not having any new conversation. It's very much like, you know what to do, you know, have a good time, relax, you've worked hard, enjoy it, you know, this is the time, like you're ready. And he would just say a lot of little things that would, like, just reaffirm that I'm ready, you're good to go kind of stuff. But the one that I remember the most was um, before the Olympic trials that I was just discussing before, my very first Olympic trials 2008 um, the 400 medley which is one of the hardest events to do as an as a swimmer um, always hurts you're always going to be in so much pain whether you go fast or slow it's just not an enjoyable event to race i was just so disappointed that my skill set was in that race so i never wanted to do it and it was on the very first day of the meet, and that makes it hard. Like usually, you'd like to have one or two races to, as we would say, blow the cobwebs out, get yourself ready, get used to the crowd, the pool, you know, the whole system before your big main race. Um, but you know, my big main race was day one, and um, you know, nerves were high and and we we're having this pre-race chat and he said to me you know we don't want any targets on our back for the olympics like we don't want to be breaking any world records we just want to make the team come first or second and just get your ticket to beijing you know don't do anything outrageous and at this point my best time was 8 seconds slower than a world record so i we had never even discussed the potential of breaking a world record ever before and he says it to me in this five minute chat before I'm about to go race and I lost it I was like why the hell would you talk about breaking world records like that is so dumb like I don't need to hear that at this point in time like and so ridiculous like why are you bringing this up of course I'm not going to break world records blah blah, blah. <laughs> go over to the marshalling area and like do this race and I remember in the race I was thinking I've like never experienced an Olympic trials or selection trials before. So everything was quite new. I didn't know if the crowd was going really loud because I was going really fast or if this is just because it's an Olympic trials, everyone, I was so far in front. So I couldn't understand if I was going really fast or everyone else going really slow. It was just was so confusing like I remember the whole race being like what is going on I don't understand but knowing I was doing a good swim and knowing a because I was in front that you know if I just kept it all going I was going to make the Olympic team and like how good um and then I turned around after I touched the wall and just saw this like huge banner on the big screen, world record.
0: What? On earth? And the
1: very first thing <laughs> I say on national television is, Oh fuck. <laughs> <laughs> like, no media training whatsoever That's at brilliant. this point in time. I didn't know if I should laugh or cry. Like I just was so overjoyed because I'd never considered breaking a world record. It was like this far out dream that, I hadn't even considered potentially ever achieving and I was so excited, did my interview and ran over to my coach and I was like, oh my God, like I broke a world record. And the very first thing he said to me was, I told you not to break a world record. And I was like, you know what? I don't give a shit. This is the best (laughs) moment of my life. Like I'm going to enjoy it. You are not raining on my parade how
0: old were you at that at that point
1: 17 i was 17 about to turn 18 and um Oh, no, I was 18, about to turn 19, something like that. I can't yeah. even remember. <laughs> and, um, and it was actually, you know, a lot of what he was saying at the time I hadn't ever really considered, but it was very hard, especially as an Australian who loves an underdog, mm-hmm. to go in as the favourite, like <laughs> the person to beat to your very first Olympics. Um, it just changed the dynamics significantly. Um, di- very different preparation.
0: Did he pull pull a Yoda on you in a way? It's like, don't do that, and then you're like, No, I. Am I gonna you do know
1: it. what? I really like. There was not that much thought process gone into <laughs> it. Um, it was just more. I think him trying to say to me, we only want to just like this is not the time to peak. This is right. the time to just make the team, and then in three months' time, when we go to the Olympics, like as a sort of like an underdog, um, that's the time to shine. You know what I mean?
0: (laughs) Yeah. On that though, on, on, on telling someone not to peak. Okay. I've always been fascinated by this because you've got heats and heats and heats, and then you got finals and then you got the, 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 the the last race. So do swimmers at your level actually pull back?
1: Oh yeah. There's definitely strategy that goes into competition.
0: And is it to, Um, to conserve energy? Is that what you yeah, know what's it really the dep- thing
1: it, well to, to be honest it really depends on how good you are <laughs> yeah.
0: because okay.
1: if you're um so the way so it, there's heats and then there's the top 16 people go through to a semi-final and then the top eight people go into a final so essentially you've got three races to to make the first two don't count you just need to have a lane in the final um and then if it- When it comes time to race the final, that's the time that counts. Um, For example, if you do a world record in the heat and make it through to the final, or you don't get a gold medal just because you broke a world record at the time, it didn't matter. So um, there's very much a strategy in place for someone like um, myself or like a Michael Phelps or Ian Thorpe, where you're swimming multiple races and like multiple events and a heat semi-final of all of those. Um, really, it was just about doing enough to make it through to the next round, uh, and then when you got to the final, that was the time to shine. But there's a lot of athletes at an Olympic level. I mean, at an Olympic level, it's it's pretty hard to switch off, but you do conserve as much as you can. Um, but yeah, there's then other athletes that obviously can't afford the luxury of doing that they have to pretty much do their best time time. in the heat to make it through to the semi-finals things like that so just depends really like where you're at knowing knowing as well that there's say three uh, three heats so if you win your heat you're sort of guaranteed of a top 16 spot you're not everyone in the like other two heats could go super super fast and you don't make it so you have to It's kind of a gamble, a little bit, but uh, educated, strategic gamble.
0: (laughs) All right. Because when you've already got so many things to think about, you know. All right. So uh, you've shared in the past that you would train for five days a week, seven hours a day. Uh, I I read that five of those seven hours uh, you were training uh, in the water and then two hours on land, such as gym. What? tools or systems did you have in place that kept you accountable to show up to that level of training?
1: Well, it was six days a week. And, oh, six um, days. Goodness and me. And I mean, the my coach and the entire training squad were who kept you accountable. It was like, it would be in this set. I mean, swimming was my job. I was paid to be an athlete just like, I guess, people listening may be paid to be an employee or maybe paid to, like, run the business or that's how you make money. So if you just, like, decide to, like, not turn up to work that day, I mean, the boss is generally going to call or, like, hey, what's going on? Um, your employees are like, oh, you're not well. Like, there's there's always a bit of a, you know, um, question as to why you're not there. Um and I guess, like anything, if you end up taking – if you take off time, which, by the way, I never did, um, people start – you start then getting a reputation that, oh, they don't really work that hard or, you know, they don't come to work all the time, you know, and, and that's what I think I was always a little, not concerned about, but – I I never did that. The the only time I would miss a session was literally like twice in my career if I missed my alarm. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, I get up in a second um, and fell back asleep for like three hours waking up to like 15 missed calls from my coach, like where are you? Um, But, yeah, no, I mean I never missed sessions it, it, it's not a sport that you can afford to miss sessions. It's kind of one of those things that if you do and you decide to take it off and that's your choice, I know that my competitors all around the world have done that session. So that's one up that they've got on me. And that mental edge that we were talking about earlier, that's where you get the mental edge is knowing you've done something more or better than your competitors. So I would never – I never wanted to miss sessions because I knew that it would have that implication and I didn't want to have any implications.
0: So good. So good. Thanks for sharing that. So you help so many through your swimming programs. Uh, In particular, you're giving back to the sport by developing learn to swim programs, uh, in particular in India, uh, with the goal of producing India's first Olympic swimming medalist. So how did that opportunity come about?
1: India has always been a country that I've felt very um, passionate about or interested in Um, this kind of like affinity that came when I was swimming and this was before social media. So every article that was written about me in in an Australian publication was replicated through Times of India or another publication in in India. And I was always so confused why because I had never been there Um, and never competed there. I'm obviously not Indian. Um, I don't have Indian heritage, so it was it was very confusing. And this wasn't happening with every other Australian athlete. It was just me. And um, and so after I guess that that going through that journey for about five or six years, social media came about. I finished my swimming career, and I was it was still happening. I had a lot of fans online that were Indian, and I just knew that there was something going on over there. And I really wanted to go see what it was about and just see if there was potential to do something in that market. And, um, so I pretty much forced my agent to come with me and he did not want to go. He's like, you can go to India on your own. (laughs) And I was like, no, you don't understand. Like we need to explore this So we invested in ourselves and, and, you know, paid for our trips to go to India, met with as many people as we possibly could to see, you know, what we could do if there is potential to do something. I knew nothing about the Indian market. And off the back of that um, came the opportunity to present India's Olympic coverage for the Rio Olympics in 2016, which I absolutely was so thrilled to do. And so during that process had to commentate a lot of sports that I knew nothing about. (laughs) So judo, wrestling, badminton, things like this. Like I was, I knew, I've never even watched those sports. So it was good learning experience for me. Definitely took me outside my comfort zone um, because I had to research A, the sport and then B the indian athletes history and give some type of educated you know um context as to how they were going and and you know why they could potentially do better etc so that was really really fun because i feel like it really tested me in a different way and then um i did a couple of other ambassador commitments over there over the past couple of years and then i just recently was asked to go present on TV their Indigenous sport in India. So kind of like AFL to Australia, Kabaddi is to India. And I had to present their coverage for four months about, again, a sport I know nothing about, and I was in Mumbai for four months, which is like testing in itself. And all the athletes' names
0: by this oh, no.
1: are like Pavesh and Sandeep and all like and there's a hundred names as well. Hundred boys, yeah. And they've all got similar last names. So, or their last names are based on the community or suburb that they were born. In particular areas so at first I was like oh my gosh they're all brothers and then they're like no they're not related but they had the same last name so it made it very confusing because I couldn't remember if it was Padeep Nadval or Sandeep Nadval or Pavesh Nadval you know what I mean I was like which one is which um it took a long time for it to just sink in for me to know all the players present it on TV and do TV presenting which I've never done before And doing that and being on ground for that long, being broadcast six days a week to 35 million viewers led to so many opportunities within sport to which I am now undertaking, which are I'm I'm a consultant for a huge gym company over there as they develop their learn to swim programs throughout the entire country. And I'm in the process of setting up my own um elite swimming academy which as you said has the goal within 10 years of getting an Indian swimmer on the podium uh which has never like they've never even made a semi-final so they've never even been top 16 before and my goal is to get them up to top three so um I'm incredibly excited. It feels very rewarding, very fulfilling. And going back to what you said at the start, it feels like the first thing I've done since swimming that lends my natural expertise to this type of job as an entrepreneur, as a businesswoman. And I'm really excited about that because I feel like I've had to learn so many other skills and try and form other expertise, but it feels just so good to go back to the thing that I know I'm awesome at and just the confidence that comes with with that. Uh, so yeah, I'm really, really excited.
0: That's fantastic. I mean, the uh, the shy girl growing up, look at her now. She's uh, commentating <laughs> about all these other sports <laughs> and being a presenter and uh, I'm so happy for you that that you were Thank able to you. to take that leap, and I'm sure your agent is probably like, a uh, good call, Steph. So. No, yeah. So now is <laughs> like loving every
1: second of it. <laughs>
0: Perfect. So, Steph, technical advice for swimming in general, um, just even a few things in particular. Let's say for for discussion's sake, freestyle, uh, specifically. The three things that I think a lot of people who are not, um, I mean, exactly what you said, you know, as an Aussie kid growing up, uh, we had swimming school uh, as part of our curriculum um, in primary school, you know, right up to to high school. I had a pool in my high school um, that we could utilize every day. Um, but i wouldn 't say that i'm a, I'm an incredibly strong swimmer, let alone others that um, that that are sort of scared of being in the water so um, specifically breathing arm strokes and leg kicks, any advice for those
1: <laughs> um, well it's really interesting because swimming a lot of people think it's arms and legs, but swimming is actually very much a core exercise, so it 's about connecting the arms and legs together as one unit. Um, I think the really cool thing about swimming that is, um, quite, quite different to other sports is that the water will float you if you work with the water and kind of are one with the water. Whereas as soon as you start fighting the water and panicking, that's when you, uh, start drowning or like, you know, sinking in the water. So it's, you've got to find this balance between power and ease. And I think it's really, um, Beneficial in a meditative sense to kind of be able to get to that place where you're, you're sort of trusting that the water will support you. Um, when it comes to swimming, the thing that I think I'll just share is, is just one thing. Uh, cause there's so many things and without seeing it, it's very hard, but most people struggle with breathing. This is the most common thing that, um, I see throughout, you know, swimming lessons or clinics or whatever it is. Um, most people hyperventilate because they go to take a breath of air and they they get a full breath in their lungs. And then the first thing we're taught as babies is to blow bubbles. And the reason you do that is so you actually blow the air out of your lungs as you're doing three or four arm strokes. And so that when you go to take a new breath of air, you've actually emptied your lungs and you're able to take in another full breath Of air, I think the natural tendency for people is to take a full breath of air, hold on to it like you don't want to lose any part of it, and (laughs) rush through four strokes so that you can get another breath of air in. But when you go to take a breath of air and you've already got a full set of lungs, you can't take any more air in. Um, And then after sort of three or four times of that, you end up hyperventilating and having to stop mid-pool to get your breath back. And it, that's quite scary for a lot of people. It's so it really comes back to what I said before. It's about trusting that you can blow the air out so that you've got the ability to take another full breath of air in. And um, it's something that we're taught as kids. But if we don't do it all the time, you know, practicing it, it you sort of lose that. So that would be my biggest tip.
0: Fantastic. And if, uh, if people out there can't make it to any of your, your programs, what, what resources can they get online or are there any videos they can watch?
1: Yeah, so I think just uh, at the start of this year, I launched my Steph Rice Swim Squad programs and I created three levels for it just because, you know, it's so hard to give someone who's an advanced swimmer the same training program as a more of a beginner. You do need to have an ability to swim. So it's not a learn to swim program. It's more of a fitness style program for swimming. The most common thing I hear is that people get really bored when they swim, and that's generally because they're kind of doing what they would do in the pool would be the same as going for a 10K run at the same speed. You know what I mean? It's quite boring. So um, I've tried to create these swimming programs almost like HIIT-style training in the water. Swimming's so great because it's got the ability of resistance, so you are doing – Sort of toning muscle building work with cardio. So it's actually a really great way to lean out, build lean muscle, lose weight, all of those types of things in a really short time. So um, it gives you the eight-week training program, three sessions a week. I've also created a number of videos on my YouTube channel. Just type in Stephanie Rice, it will come up. Um, just for tips around how to do the strokes properly um, and how to swim, I guess, more efficiently. What to work on. So that's been a really nice little venture that I did just because so many people were asking me what to do in the pool, and I realised that not a lot of people actually know what to do. Um, therefore, they get bored. So it's been nice to hear feedback that people really enjoy doing the sessions and that they've noticed big improvements and stuff like that. Um, and that's kind of the thing that I've created for
0: public. Awesome. I will link that up for everyone uh, on the podcast blog post. Now, I wanted to briefly chat about uh, post-swimming life. So um, correct me if I'm wrong, Steph, you, you've had three shoulder surgeries. Is that correct?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's that's you know, imp- important and, and full on. I think, um, there are a lot of people that, I mean, I had my ankle surgery this year, at the start of this year, I had two ligaments, um, uh, replaced, um, artificially. Yep. So you, having three shoulder, shoulder surgeries is, is huge. Um, was that part of the decision process when you were assessing, uh, officially retiring from, from professional swimming?
1: No, it wasn't actually. I think it would be a really easy excuse. (laughs) But um, no, for me, I mean, so the thing with swimming is that just because you do that many laps – injuries are usually caused by repetition just like a slow breakdown of the muscles Um, as you said before we were training sort of five hours a day averaging 60 kilometers a week in the pool um, 50 weeks of the year there's no real off season for swimming so I think I mean naturally if you're doing 60 kilometers a week on your shoulders that just ends up 10 to 15 years of that just breaks down so that was that was the first surgery I had was just to repair like the breakdown of the the bursa and the like you know the kind of inflammation that had been caused, um, and then the next one I tore the tendon in my shoulder six weeks before the Olympic trials, great, and um, and the surgery was a six month recovery, so I couldn't actually have the repair surgery done before the olympic trials and or before the olympics just because i would if i had the surgery i wouldn't have been able to race so Um, yeah, my coach and I essentially made the decision like after that happened, which was leading into the London Olympics. So I was already a three-time Olympic gold medalist at this point. And we just said, well, you're just going to have to kind of deal with it. So had to train through a torn tendon for eight weeks to make the London Olympics, which I did, and then had to train through it again for another three months leading into London. So it was kind of one of those ones that it just got more sore and more inflamed the more I pushed through it. Um, and so that definitely hindered my training. Um, I said before, we were doing 60 kilometers a week on average. I was only able to get through about 30 kilometers a week. So, even just from a physical standpoint, I'm doing half what I did, which was what made me a gold medalist. Um, and then mentally, feeling like I know I'm super underdone that was really hard knowing that all your competitors have definitely like without a doubt done more training than me Um, leading into the London Olympics was a very different um, mental ball game for me because I knew I was underprepared, but it was also like, Oh, well, (laughs) this is all you've got. Like you cannot change this. The Olympics are rolling around, you know, in a couple of days. So you either like deal with it and do the best you can or like pull out, you know what I mean? Like it was just, there was, there was no option. Um, so to have come forth under those circumstances, uh, like I did so much better than I deserved to on paper in terms of training and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But, um, I think what, like what allowed me to even come forth was just the fact that I had done it before. I knew I was going to race hard. I knew I was going to leave no stone unturned because I just wanted to finish my racing and, and no, I couldn't have done anything better, like a no regrets philosophy I always had. And um, so I was very emotional then after the London Olympics, had the third surgery to repair the actual, you know, damage, which sort of set me out for six months anyway. Um, so I wasn't swimming at all after London, but it took me about a year to like work through the emotional trauma of all of that and being so disappointed that that had happened and that that was my pathway and why couldn't it have been a good prep could have been Australia's most successful ever Olympian like all these things that came, I guess, into play and Uh, It took me a while. So I I didn't announce my official retirement until a year after the London Olympics because I just wanted to make a very non-emotional based decision. And I didn't want to make a comeback or go back on my decision. So, um, Yeah, then I think I struggled really, like, uh, honestly, for probably three and a half years after that. So this is now four years out of my career with just like, what now? Who am I? Identity kind of crisis, like feeling very unmotivated, incredibly tired and lethargic. I had adrenal fatigue, a lot of things going wrong which is kind of where I adopted this whole personal development passion um, because I then transitioned to being a vegan. I, I just did anything and everything that may or may not have helped me when it came to, I guess, health and personal development mindset, things like that. So whether it was Tony Robbins events, online courses, seminars, Reiki healing, kinesiology, counseling, psychology, like I just tried everything and um, some of it didn't work for me, and other stuff I found hugely beneficial and um, I guess that's what's always sparked my passion for i would say less mental health more more so you know, mental high performance and, um, you know, mental wellness around positivity. I meditate every day. I exercise almost every day. I'm vegan, I'm healthy. And I think people look now at what I do on Instagram or social media and say, Oh my God, like, it's so great. Like, you're so lucky that you're so positive or whatever. And whilst I appreciate the compliment, I didn't just roll out of bed with this positive attitude and amazing achievements that I've been fortunate to experience. Like I've worked really hard for that and I work every day to, to continue those routines that make me the best person that I can be and everyone has the ability to do that. It's not necessarily uh, hard work, it's just that a lot of people don't make the effort to to do those small things like meditate or eat healthy or move their body in some form, which has all been proven to have hugely positive mental benefits. So I think, um, that's something that I'm, I try to share is just that, you know, you can always incorporate bits and pieces like this into your life and how great it will be for you to do.
0: Yeah. And this is a massive reason why I wanted to chat with you, Steph, to be honest. Um, there is, Stephanie Rice, the one that we see when we Google your name um, with all the swimming and all the th- things that have come with it, which we just spoke about. But then there is this part of life like I don't think people knew that three years post you retiring, you've had those um, sort of darker times. Um, I actually ran into one of uh, your articles you wrote on LinkedIn, um, five most common mistakes athletes make when they retire. Um, And then if I may, I I love this paragraph. It it was around the perspective side of things. It just really complements what you've just said. And if I may, I'll just read. It says, Athletes spend a lot of time comparing their past as an athlete to the life they are living now, thinking that everything from here on out will be less than you've already experienced, that nothing will feel as exciting or liberating or that performing did. You may feel as though the highest points in your life have already happened and that nothing will fulfill you like sport did. Trust me that you will find new ways to feel fulfilled outside of sport. And most often they will come from giving back and sharing the wealth and knowledge and insights you have gained through your athletic career to help others. So powerful. I mean, what what goes through your mind when you, when you hear that back?
1: Yeah, I get like goosebumps like emotionally because it's so – it was so me. Like that's exactly – like if I had to sum up the why I think I struggled so much, that was it. Like there was a number of other things and obviously I shared five <laughs> within that story and I'm sure there's many, many more. But that was the big one was just feeling as though – you know you're walking up a staircase and the olympic gold medals and swimming were the the top stair like that was the pinnacle and that then retiring from sport was like starting to walk down the staircase and i've got to be honest everyone i had around me also was affirming that so whether they were managers at the time or advisors and i know that they weren't always coming from a bad place it was just more like oh well, you're not going to be earning as much money anymore or you're not going to be in the spotlight as much so there won't be as many you know opportunities or you won't be interesting to people anymore like people only want to support people like as an ambassador or as media interest if you're doing something and you're not doing something so it's all going to fall away so I think I always had that in mind, and I uh, was constantly getting reaffirmed it from the people that were, I guess you know my advisors um, and that was just really hard. so I definitely believed that for a long time and then i I think just because I felt so lost and so confused as to what is my pathway, you know, why haven't I found something else that excites me and liberates me in the way that sport does that was the call for personal development. Um, that's why I guess I embarked on that because I thought, well, there's gotta be something like, surely life is not going to be this shit at 25 onwards. Like, um, there's gotta be more to this. Like, I don't believe that this is what you know, we're brought here to life to do, like, or to feel. So, um, yeah, and I I definitely felt like the first time I felt really good again was doing my very first Tony Robbins conference. I think just being around people that wanted to have more, wanted to be more, wanted to see improvements, just felt good. Um, And then I moved myself from Australia to America just to get away from all the people that I had, Around me, or just even public, that were constantly asking me, What what are you doing now? What are you doing now? And I was like, I've got no bloody clue, but you can't say that. So I just felt like I was living a little bit of a double life, like telling people I was working on all these things and I was doing all this stuff, which I was doing. I just didn't really enjoy it. Um, So I thought, you know, screw this. I'm just going to move to America. And now's the time. I'm, you know, I don't have a partner. I don't have a family. Like I can, I can go and loved it. Like, I mean, it was really hard. <laughs> I had no job as such when I was in America. So I had to find work and create avenues for income for myself, which I think then spurred my entrepreneurial side, which was nice. And, um, and then I came back, maybe like three years ago now and I've felt ever since I've come back stuff has just started to move and started to take shape and I've I'm, I mean I'm constantly working on my own mindset like I said before it's not like it's just something that you achieve like a high school certificate or a university degree and then you're like cool I've got that like it's done it's something that does need constant work and constant and pro progress Um, so yeah, I feel things have been really, really good for the past three years. In particular, I would say from about 12 months ago, things have really, really like been amazing. And I'm so grateful for that because it, it's not lost on me how fortunate I am to have the stuff that I have or to have a public voice that can share anything. And I choose to use that voice for positivity or for, um you know, positive benefit, whether it 's around health or mindset or anything um and I think having been through that like roller coaster and that huge dip has just given me so much more perspective, whereas one I won gold medals and was thrown into the spotlight. I definitely lost perspective on it. Like I definitely started to become a lot more egotistical. I don't think I was that much of a nice person to be around when I did work, you know, for sponsors or in front of the camera, it felt like work to me. Like I was like, Oh, like I have to do this because this is a requirement, you know, contractually. Whereas now I actually love the stuff that I do. And I purposefully only say yes to stuff that, I am going to enjoy or feels that there is mutual benefit for us to both undertake together. Um, and so I'm just very, I'm very clear. It's the easiest way to sum up, I guess, where I am now. I'm just very, very clear on what I want, what I stand for, what I value and what I want to contribute to people. Or I guess in a bigger, broader sense, what I'm doing in, in India is more of a legacy piece and it just feels really, really good.
0: Yeah, I think you just answered my next question um, <laughs> around uh, when you're faced with competing pressures uh, in life and opportunities even, uh, how do you prioritize what's important first, you know?
1: Oh, I find it really easy now. Um I I think I used to get very caught up in the pros and cons, the the money, the, op, you know, the opportunity, things like that, and not actually look at the core values of the partnership or what you are signing into. And I'm talking about from a sponsorship standpoint, so brands that I would support, but this would apply to everyone in a um in an employee sense or, um, businesses that you want to associate with and things like that. Um, I'm very much of the fact that when you like partner in any form, it has to be an equal value exchange and you have to feel that there is an equal value exchange. So whether it's Um, you know, services for money, or if it's uh, opportunity cost, or if it's um, this just feels like a win-win, like everything I do has to feel like a win-win because I've done things before that are either like a win for me and a bit of a lose for them. And it feels awful and vice versa. I feel like I've signed up to stuff that I know I'm not getting paid equally what I should be getting paid or that this is way better for them than this is for me. And it just doesn't feel good. And having done that um, and having been, I guess, a an, a brand ambassador for companies for maybe 12 years now, I'm very clear and it's very easy for me to make decisions. I don't do one-off stuff. Um, and I think that's where this world of social media influences, which I absolutely hate the the name. um are going to get themselves in trouble and are starting to get themselves in trouble because they don't seem to stand for anything. They don't seem to have a specific value set as a whole. Like I'm totally generalizing the entire (laughs) world, like part of influencer community, but You know, people sort of one minute are posting about health and the next minute posting about fast food and the next minute talking about something else. And I'm like, which one are you? Because I'm trying to relate to you and learn from you in some capacity. And I'm just very confused as to who you are. And therefore, your sort of time in the sun is going to be only very small. Whereas I don't do a one off stuff because it looks completely inauthentic. And unless I actually use the product, um, or love the product or like what the, the product stands for, I'm not going to do it. And therefore, I think I have better traction with A, the success of that partnership and be the people that see it and connect with me on social media or in person. They're like, Oh my God, I love that you stand for X, Y, Z, and that everything that you post about does revolve around that in some capacity. Um, and I think that's why I think I've been able to do what I'm doing. For the length of time that I've been doing it because I I don't know many other athletes in particular that have been able to still, I guess, do what I'm doing without having a vehicle like swimming to kind of put me in the spotlight on a continual basis.
0: Yeah, super refreshing to hear uh, you putting your foot down and and uh, anchoring yourself with your values. Um, something that we can certainly all. Uh, learn and you from. know
1: what? It has been really testing. Like, there's been a number of times that I've been presented, say, a TV opportunity, um, and it's big money. Like, you're like one of those ones that you're like, oh my god, how good <laughs> would this be? Like, yeah. my life with this money and how great. But. It's, and and there has been times where I've like milled over it for a couple of weeks, like let me think about this, let me think about this, weighing up all the pros and cons. And I've, I've said no, I would say, uh, if on a whole throughout my career to double what I've said yes to. So if I had said yes to everything that came in and taken all those amazing money ventures, um, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. I think the reason that I'm still able to kind of to do what I'm doing is the fact that I've said no to a lot of stuff that I know isn't right, even though the money is so, so good. Um, I just trust that that money will come back around in a more aligned, a uh, fashion that will be better for me well, and better for them.
0: There's a, uh, there's that quote by Warren Buffett who yeah, said I love that, his stuff. right. And he said that quote, which just reminded me of what you said. He said uh, the difference between successful people and really successful people are that really successful people say no to almost everything. Yeah. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. Cool.
1: But I do think that's what's lost on, um, you know, the external gratifying world of social media and TV and what, what people see on a day-to-day basis uh, where it's only in opportunities like this where you get to have a real conversation that people go, oh, my God, I never would have known that, you know, I never would have known because all I see is you doing this great stuff and I never would have known that there was hardship or that you say no to all these opportunities. And, you know, how great that like what you actually say yes to is real. (laughs) Um, So it's nice to have the opportunity to get into such depth.
0: Yes. Yes. So I am very, very conscious of time uh, and respect yours, Steph. So a few more questions just to wind down rapid ones that I ask all my guests.
1: I suck because I'm such a deaf person. So I find it so hard to just sum everything up in like yeah.
0: one word. No, I love it. It's, it's, it's good. And, and by all means, uh, not too fast. <laughs> You'll
1: be like one answer and I'll
0: be like, no. Won't box you in. Um, if you could travel back in time for 30 seconds and speak to junior Stephanie Rice, perhaps the youngster finishing high school, what would you tell her?
1: Ah. Oh everything's going to be okay.
0: Boom. Nailed it. Who has been an impactful giant thinker in your life? Perhaps that person who has inspired you to think bigger and dig deeper in helping you reach your full potential.
1: Um, I want to say me. I've always been a really big dreamer. Um, I would say my coach as well has played a huge part just believing that that was possible. I think that was, I needed that because I, I always thought I could, but it was nice to have someone else reaffirm that, yeah, let's do it together.
0: Yeah. And as you said, um, there, there is that, uh, quote as well, which ties into having great people around you. You know, we are the, we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So, um, yes, shout out to Michael Bol. right? Um, so what's next for you, Steph, with everything you're involved in for the rest of the year and beyond?
1: Um, well, there's. I mean, I'm still building all this stuff in India that I have already shared, so very much continuing to get that underway and have hopefully my um, elite academy be uh, running by the end of the year, start of next year. Um, there's a lot of work I'm doing in the pipeline on an international basis with a couple of really cool companies, which I'm very excited about. I'm just about to leave for America in five days as I'm getting inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame, which is is a huge (laughs) honor. I'm very excited about it. And it feels really nice because I've been retired for seven years to um, like go back and relive all of this swimming stuff. Because honestly, outside of doing a podcast like this, where you ask me a lot of swimming questions, I never think about my Olympic career. Um, And I always forget that like I actually have won three gold medals because I don't feel like... A superstar person on a day-to-day basis. I just feel like a normal person. And, um, it almost feels like my swimming career is a very vague past life that I can remember parts of, but doesn't feel like it's me or that it's real. It just feels like I remember it vaguely, uh, like from a past life. So it feels like, you know, it's not relevant to this life (laughs) (laughs) and I continually have to like remind myself. And so it's nice to do stuff like this where, I do, I am reminded and I get to think about it. And being inducted into the Hall of Fame will be a really nice reminder again.
0: Yeah, so cool. I just saw that uh, a couple of weeks back when you were holding, containing your excitement. Yeah. That was so good. Um, So, Steph, how can listeners get in touch with you online?
1: The easiest way is through my website, stephanierice.com.au. Otherwise, like on all of my social media channels, Instagram is the one that I usually reply on. Everything is it's Steph Rice. Uh, someone took Steph Rice and Stephanie (laughs) Rice. So I was like, right on, I'll just take it's Steph Rice. Uh, and, um, yeah, that's the, that's my favorite way of connecting with people either via email or on
0: Instagram. Brilliant. I'll link that all up. Stephanie, uh, thank you so much for your time. You are an absolute breath of fresh air. Uh, you are both humble and fierce, And I hope this episode lives as a frequent reminder for all of us on what heights can be achieved by pushing our potential and showing up to the work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's really sweet and lovely to hear.
0: Thank you for tuning in, Giants. I hope Stephanie has given you plenty to think about and perhaps a few things to try and apply in your situation. If there's something in this episode that resonated with you, then it might with a friend as well. You can forward GiantThinkers.com to anyone and it'll take them right to it. Also, the Giant Thinkers podcast is available on Spotify. So if that's more convenient for you to listen to, every single episode appears on Spotify too on top of iTunes, Stitcher and any preferred podcast app. Now a quick teaser for our next guest. He is the CEO of Bridge Climb Sydney, which has clocked over 4 million local and international visitors in climbing the Sydney Harbour Bridge and is voted the number one experience in Australia. Our next guest describes himself as a servant leader truth seeker and meditator among many other incredible attributes and he knows what it takes to scale a business to soaring heights stay tuned for that one out very soon before i close out this episode i'd like to briefly draw your attention to stocksy as mentioned at the beginning of the show stocksy are my image search library of choice and upon landing on their website you'll see why Plus, you get a massive 20% off as a listener, so I really do encourage you to check them out. Their library is highly curated and isn't full of cheesy overused assets. The entire website is the easiest to use of all the libraries I've come across. From searching, filtering, and navigating, it's all intuitive and simple. They even have a drag and drop search feature. If you have an image and want to see a similar image on Stocksy, drag that image that you found into the Stocksy website on the browser and Stocksy will populate anything that is related for you to review. Plus they have a search by color feature. Enter a hex code or use their slider to search Stocksy's collection by color. So if you need high quality stock images or videos without breaking the bank, have a look at Stoxy. Take advantage of the exclusive 20% off discount and head to giantthinkers.com slash Stoxy. That's giantthinkers.com slash S-T-O-C-K-S-Y. Use the code GIANTTHINKERS20. The link is also on this blog post. For any questions regarding this podcast or anything at all, I'd love to hear from you, and the best way to reach me is on Instagram. Simply send me a DM via my handle, the Giant Thinker. Lastly, I'll leave you with a quote that I loved from Stephanie who said, knowing you've done something more or better than your competitors, that's where you get the mental edge.